We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great game business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use Iron Source's game growth platform to turn their amazing games into amazing game businesses. Now, when it comes to content, these guys don't mess around. You may have heard of the Level Up podcast and Medium blog, which feature game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. Head to ironsource.com to learn more. That's www.ironsrc.com. Thanks. This podcast episode is also brought to you by AppsFlyer. Most of you are familiar with AppsFlyer. It's perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile, a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive marketing success. But what is attribution platform? Why do we need it? And why is AppsFlyer the best in the business? Brian Murphy, head of games at AppsFlyer. Can you answer these questions? Sure. Uh, right now, marketing budgets are being impacted. Uh, so the need for strong attribution and measurement partners is critical. Marketers should be focusing on what's working best. So mobile measurement and attribution partners who help provide uh, those insights are even more important. Mobile attribution platforms determine which campaigns, partners, and channels delivered each app install. And marketers rely on these insights to measure and optimize their marketing performance for both user acquisition and retargeting campaign. With 1 trillion in-app events measured each month, AppsFlyer is the most robust technology platform and mobile measurement partner for any game developer to distribute and engage their application to a worldwide consumer base. Our scale and data insights provide customers with unique ability to make informed marketing decisions. In short, AppsFlyer gives you the data and tools to market your games effectively. So there you have it, folks. Go to appsflyer.com and get yourself one of the best attribution platforms out there. Yo, Twig86, we're all here, full freaking house. Myself, Joe Kim, we've got a special guest host, Vnebo from Network, Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, and V Mishka Kakoff. We are going to be covering three articles today. First, why Zynga bought Pete Games from VentureBeat. I think we already we discussed this to some degree last week, but we'll go in more depth this week. Mm-hmm. Glue announces pricing of public offering of common stock by from the Glue website. Can't and wait I, for this one. This is going to be my favorite one. <laughs> yeah, it's can't called, wait to hear what uh, Eric has to say about this one. But <laughs> and and third, game and UA teams that work together grow together. Written by Nebo himself, so we have the author with us on the Deconstructor of Fun website. So how are y'all doing? Good. You're you're apparently doing really good. Adam, how's how's Canada? Great. Turned out I picked a pretty good time to leave. Oh shit. <laughs> um, yeah, it's all right. I'm in quarantine. Um, so you know, set up in this little old grandma's house in Canada, in Guelph, Ontario, if you want to Google map it in the middle of nowhere um no it's actually pretty nice the canadian government calls every single day to make sure that i'm quarantining and say you know sorry that's about it and now how long is this <laughs> how long is this quarantine gonna last uh two weeks so i'm in my second week so on saturday move up to near toronto and start my life very cool good 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 yeah. well nothing's really happening in the world so you can just quarantine yourselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> nothing's happening in games that's for sure it's not like i missed a huge podcast last week or anything yeah we were we were talking about it earlier it's like uh, the podcast was so successful last week and the only real common denominator is that adam wasn't there so, yeah wow so i'm thinking we, we literally didn't have anything worth talking about we just <laughs> shoot the shit and now that adam's not here it's actually pretty fun so let's try one with adam now let's see how this one goes yeah, exactly <laughs> Down you're on notice, Adam. You're on notice, dude. <laughs> Make it good. All right. Well, jumping into updates, I'll start with a quick shout out for a hashtag Black Lives Matter. This past week, we saw a flurry of activity by game companies in support. I was actually quite surprised at the actual level of real action starting to be taken by games companies. It did seem like it started off with the typical just sort of PR post without too much substance, just to be honest. But uh, surprisingly, once Sony delayed their PS5 announcement to make room for Black Lives Matter and then Supercell announced some stuff, and then things just started to roll. And I just wanted to highlight what I felt were the two biggest supporters. First is Riot. 
So Riot Games, on top of a $1 million donation and matching funds for the Innocence Project and the ACLU, they created a $10 million fund for diverse games creators. And secondly, Activision and Call of Duty Modern Warfare has a Black Lives Matter splash in between every game match in Warzone. They've got a nice message there. I've literally never seen anything like this in a game before. So for me, this was quite impressive. And they are also making a more concerted effort to remove racist content from the game. And so if any of you have ever played a multiplayer PvP game, you know it's, uh, it's definitely a problem. So anyway, that's it for me for updates. And just to be clear, I'm not saying this is enough in terms of our industry. And I think we've got a ways to go before we have more, we have enough diversity, but definitely thought it was an encouraging first start. So uh, who's next? AT. Yeah, uh, that's me. <laughs> kind of hard to follow that, to be honest. Uh, we need a little bit of a break. Okay, so let's get into the, the gaming news. Playrix uh, actually soft launched a new game, Puzzle Breakers. Did you guys actually take a look at this? No. It actually looks like a carbon copy of Supercell's like, art style, but it's a, clearly an attempt to recreate the formula from Empires and Puzzles. Looks like it's trying to go for the same sort of progression verticals, so it's got like character collection, base building. It'll be interesting to watch this. It'll be interesting to watch it in comparison to, say, King's recent TCRPG. I forget the name of it. The action RPG game. The uh, Knighthood? Knighthood? Yeah, Knighthood, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, like, this one aims for innovation. Sorry, uh, Knighthood aims for innovation in the core gameplay and art style. But this one aims to try to match the depth of Empires and Puzzles. And I think my bet is actually on the player. So I think mm -hmm. Play Rex's mid-core strategy might actually work out better than King's. Yeah, that's 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 most. I I could not play Knighthood for a long time. It it started to get super repetitive, and um, yeah, it lacked really the depth. But this is this is an interesting one because we have a puzzle combat from from Empires and Puzzles being slated to launch. Um, when 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 did they? Uh, I think they announced that they're they're launching it. They they kind of announced the whole slate, but that has been in a soft launch in soft launch for a hot second, which is interesting, given that it's a reskin of empires and puzzles. So the fact that it has taken them so long to hold that game in soft launch means that it's not that easy to get your, Wait, I, your we, game out. Do you listen to the podcast, dude? I mean, we've been talking about this for months and months and months, right? <laughs> Which podcast? <laughs> oh my Lord. We don't, they, they're not releasing it because it's not ready. They're not releasing it because they don't need it. Right. So they'll, no. they'll release it. It's, it's been ready <laughs> to go. It's like, the, the it's, question it's adding is about more scaling more. though. It is, dude. The, oh. the metrics look really, really solid, and and they keep adding stuff. So I, I, I'm not really too worried about the monetization. I'm more worried about obviously cannibalization, as we've talked about a gazillion yeah. times. So. Yeah, I, I, I've played combat puzzles for for quite a while, and and I think it's I think it's a little bit better than Empires and Puzzles. So let's see how it does. Um, it's a very competitive, uh, very competitive uh, genre. Yes. Yeah. But the problem with this one is like I've I've have some experience of, of this is just that cpis are super high and these uh these puzzle games don't have as high of a of an ltv as for example squad based um rpgs and especially these idle rpgs that are popping out so that in that sense it is it is a difficult um but what isn't a difficult so that's another. yeah and i don't think that the recipe they're using for other games is going to work here with like yeah. misleading ads and whatnot so i don't know the misleading ads has worked for them with everything from township to to yeah. wildscapes so on the other hand it might be good for this one if they get the ipm super high yeah i'm just uh, it, it just in this case the, the impact on retention might outweigh the the gains on the ipm side mm. and that's that's where most uh most of these games fail yeah so, so let's talk about playerix a little bit more uh there was a couple of talent acquisitions this week um so, or acquisitions, however you want to put it. So Playrix acquired Croatian PC developer called, okay, I don't know, this is Satea or Katea or whatever it is. Uh, it's, a, it's a staff of 40, mainly developed time management simulation, simulators and sort of a point, point and click adventure games for PC uh, and Mac. Uh, the studio has now been branded as Playrix Croatia and it has been begun development of a new free-to-play mobile game, which is interesting because they did not have mobile games, nor free-to-play games before this. Uh, so Playrix CEO Dmitry Bukham said that the talent of uh, Gatea Games 
combined with the resources and expertise gives PlayerX Croatia significant opportunities to create a new mobile hit for millions of players around the world. That's a very bold statement. Uh, but, you know, we wish them the best of luck. It's quite interesting when you look at PlayerX, they've been acquiring a lot of these um, what would you call them tier three developers, you know, not a knock on them, but they just don't have a lot of experience. And especially with this one, it's not even a mobile developer. It's not even a free to play developer. And now they're making a, a new game. So a uh, very interesting strategy from Playrix picking up all these, these studios, given, given how much really how much money they have that they could actually, you know, pick up something more tangible like tactile or, or voodoo. <laughs> Eric's favorite <laughs> company. <laughs> Uh, and there was another uh, talent acquisition. So Rovio acquired Dark Fire Games. And uh, per Rovio CEO, got the level on this comment, this strengthens our game genre mastery and expansion to mid-core games, where we see attractive opportunities in RPGs. In addition, there's a great strategic and cultural fit for both teams. So... Um, People who don't know Darkfire, the studio has previously worked for Wargaming Mobile. It's a work for hire studio. And um, I mean, we're happy for Darkfire and Katea finding homes in very difficult times. But um, what do you guys think about, think about these acquisitions? Those are like more of like an aqua hire, right? These guys yeah, are struggling. Yeah. So this yeah. is not like, okay. Yeah. What was interesting in reading this, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, as, as previously, like we we're acquiring sort of a, I work for hire studio to increase our production capabilities or, or to, you know, offset content creation. Both of these studios apparently are being acquired for them to make new games, which is extremely difficult. And especially given that mo neither of the studios is, is, you know, um, doesn't have at least any previous success for making new games, uh, especially new free to play games. It's kind of questionable that. that well, um, well, these guys are part of the casualty of the war gaming mobile attempt right and so I, they I think that's still ongoing i think that's still <laughs> <laughs> come on wargaming those guys don't know what they're doing on mobile come on <laughs> anyway so it's just a team of guys that now have moved on to rovio so from one unsuccessful mobile company <laughs> to another <laughs> i already knew what you're gonna say like immediately <laughs> wow I, I i'm just wow. i'm just joking i just i'm just trying to give it back a little bit um no good i'm glad they found a home you know hopefully they can yeah, create yeah. some good content you know yeah. so super happy for both of the studios um yeah all power to yeah. them I, I i don't know like with, with these two different strategies right the playrix one does kind of confuse me um my initial read of this was this was a continuation of their acquisition strategy that they had through last year where they're kind of doing these aqua hires for in these low cost centers to be able to actually export a lot of their content development, which I think that makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you said, okay, it's a new game development, the PC developer that worked on a lot of like casual point and click adventures for PC, right? Like, okay, maybe they're going to be building some sort of like hidden object mobile free to play model. And, and like the best chance that they've got is that central playlist is very, very, um, yeah, like very, very um, commanding in terms of exactly how to run that game, right? Uh, just because this team does, have, does, does not have mobile or free to play experience. So I don't know, that, that seems odd to me. I, I yeah. would have felt like the, the acquisition strategy here would have been better if it would have been, say, building out the content for Manor Matters or for any of their other games. Right, right. I, I, I think we, I don't know if we've spoken about this before, but I think Playrix is in a really tough spot right now where. I mean, they're in a very enviable slot because they're freaking minting money. But the problem is that they are too big to be acquired and they're not the type of company that would likely go public because I guess they're based in the Ukraine, right? I think no, in Russia. No, Russia, I think. Russia, right. Yeah. So anyway, that's a real challenge for them because they're just so huge now that they have to actually grow on their own, right? Um, you know, they, they don't have to go. We talked about this briefly uh, in the last podcast I was on, they don't really have to go public. I think it's also the, the way uh, they look at things is not the same the way thing we look at things here in the U.S. Okay, and they might be just making like they're fine with making a lot of money and not going public. Um, you know, okay. that's just like a good outcome for them as well. Um, 
and and uh, I'm wondering, I, I might derail the conversation a little bit, but I think the entire COVID thing and the fact they're a fully distributed company and they were always uh, a fully distributed company, but I actually work from them on the M&A front because they are suddenly less, more attractive because everybody else is moving to become like a remote company or like a fully distributed company. And Playrix has always been that. So, yeah, But to Adam's point, why are they acquiring something like this? Like, yeah, I, that's well, and, and then giving yeah. them the keys to a new game. I think that's the key, right? Yeah. Like, why why not make this into an outsourced studio, an insourcing studio, uh, like some of their yeah. other acquisitions? I think, I think that they just need fun. like you know basic offices in all these countries where they can have access to talent. Uh, I see. Um, I and and it's probably not expensive. Uh, and that's you know they they can still given because of the time zone limitations and whatnot they still can control those offices pretty well or have control of the, over those offices versus yeah. acquiring like a company in the US um, and maybe just by saying that they're building a new game at the studio then they can acquire that like they can hire yeah. in a lot easier than if they just said it was only insourcing yeah because maybe you know more than 50% of the studio ends up being insourcing but there's yeah, one exactly. new game here just to start pulling in talent yeah, and okay. the, the statement is uh, looks like a template, you know, with like hundreds of millions of players and whatnot. So I think they're just acquiring a lot of these small studios because they need more people. So yeah, yeah that's just my guess. Yeah, so because then you compare that against Rovio's strategy here, where they're kind of like I, I don't really know the Darkfire team like pre Wargaming Mobile, but clearly like the. Rovio has kind of had this history of acquiring these teams for, I would say, like bargain prices, right? Like they grab these teams that are kind of right on the edge financially, pull them in to try to give them some additional genre expertise in areas that they don't have. Generally, I just don't believe this makes any sense. I don't, I can't, can't remember any kind of situation where an aqua hire for these kind of like bargain deals has actually turned positive. Except with the golf clash. Yeah. 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 Right. Like yeah, that's the one. It, it's a lottery ticket at that point, right? The golf, but a cheap ticket. lottery ticket. A cheap lottery ticket. You just won't, don't walk fast. Sure. So then you, but then in this case, you're looking at like Wargaming Mobile. Do you like? I don't think they're going to be in a situation where Wargaming Mobile hands over the keys to a game to Rovio, and then Rovio launches it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. You're you're absolutely right. Neither of these are really needle movers, and and well, Rovio is public, and we can see in the uh, in the stock that it didn't really affect anything. So it's it's seen as an aqua hire. So. And, yeah, but I just feel like like if you you do this acquisition and nothing happens, that tells me that all you're doing is adding overhead and spreading your bets too thin instead of actually you know focusing on the genres that you need to build expertise on. So yeah. I, like if I was Rovio, I would be doubling down on the genres that they know would, best, um, and then kind of getting out of a lot of this like. But but um, okay, so stuff. so if if you want to go deeper into that, like like let's say let's say well, what's the genre that Rovio knows best? Puzzle. Okay, so you so you got puzzle and you have Angry Birds two, which is kind yeah. of that puzzle RPG hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you do puzzle, like how much money do you really need to have to have to an acquire a studio that actually not, knows how to make and scale puzzle games? Well, ideally, Rovio itself knows how to make puzzle games on their own, right? Yeah. But but if you acquire a studio that is not strong in making puzzle games and puzzle games is your core expertise, uh, then why would you acquire something that is weaker than what you're doing? Unless your goal to basically is to just... do insourcing, right? So then okay, you're doing it. an aqua hire for for level designers mm-hmm, out of mm-hmm. a lower cost center than. So, so you'd acquire basically something like I don't know. I'm just throwing out Outplay. Which is a which is like a development studio out in Scotland, I believe, uh, and there are plenty of similar ones where, where they do outsourcing and, and, and projects for for others. Yeah. Sure, I, I don't know the outplay, but um... yeah, makes sense. I just mentioned because I'll, I'll play guys listen to this podcast, and so there was comments. So I think, um, we lost, I think we lost them. Yeah. Good points, Adam. Oh. So let's get. Yeah. Let's get <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what happened there. I, I just bumped me off the call. Let's 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 talk about uh, let's talk about big acquisitions. So let's talk about Weizinga bought Peak Games for one point eight billion dollars. So this article came out on on VentureBeat um, this week. No, last week. Sorry, uh, and and it talks about in a bit of more details about the acquisition. So the one point eight was divided actually in eight nine hundred million in cash and nine hundred million in company stock. 
And Peak Games, as we know, is you know they have two big games, Toy Blast, Toon Blast. Both of them are about 600 million in revenues, and the staff is only 100 people at, at Peak, which is crazy. Um, and of course, this impacts Zynga's EBITDA right away. And we can we can kind of we can kind of look at Peak. Like I'm sure there were other companies that were trying to buy Peak. I'm, I'm sure Tencent was was bidding there. I'm, I'm you know uh, other ones as well. And the real question is like, why did they chose Zynga out of all these other suitors? So I think what what really plays is of course the uh, before that Zynga bought Peak's card games for a hundred million, and they also bought Gram Games, which was two hundred mil- two hundred fifty million in cash plus uh, earnouts. And Graham Games is another Istanbul-based um, publisher developer, and they share the same investors. So, of course, through that, there's a, there's a deeper relationship. And there's also another studio, another set of founders that the P guys could have probably discussed. Is like, hey, you've been with Zynga now for a couple of years. How is it? Are these guys full of shit, or are they are they truly, you know, what they what they say they are? So they also have a very good track record. So, of course, small giant with 560 million. Uh, in 2018, Gram Games, I think that was also 2018 for 250. And, um, and, and in addition to this track record of purchasing these companies and growing them after the purchase, uh, they have also a track record where they haven't imposed their culture, but instead allowed these companies and these studios to stay, stay autonomous. And that has paid off. So they've been hands off and, 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 you know, yeah. Anyway, uh, what was interesting about this is that there was no earnout, at least not not something that that the um, that Frank discussed in this article. And basically, this is due to two reasons. So Frank Chabot said that the previous deals had earnouts because the games weren't as established and carried more of a risk slash reward. And number two is the stock will provide incentives for peak games, hundred employees to stay on board. So instead of uh, typical earnouts, in this case, apparently it's it's more of like a, a hefty retention bonus to to stay on board. So my analysis for this is um, I've always kind of put in like these four key elements what makes a successful game publisher in the modern days. And in my opinion, number one, it's you really need to have the strong live services, so ability to grow and sustain growth with both big and small updates, so bolt beats and, and regular daily updates. You have to have uh, your, you know, you have to have great player acquisition resources. This goes both to the people, the data, the creative. Basically, you know how to acquire users and yeah, effectively. Number three is you have to have genre mastery. So you have to focus on what you're doing and, and keep on building on your previous success and your previous failures. And number four is you also have to have a diversified portfolio. And that really helps you to offset any kind of market fluctuations. You know, if Fortnite launches and you're making shooters, your whole business is not going down the drain for, for, for that quarter because there was a new game. So when we think about what Peak brings to Zynga, number one is they, they bring users. So I, I believe, you know, what they said, 12 million DAU, which is insane. So that, that increases the user base. Uh, and also it diversifies the user base because when you look at Peak's users, they're, ac- they're actually pretty good in Japan. And Zynga doesn't really have anything going on in Asia. So, so that's, that's, a, that's an excellent, um, excellent addition. Number two is, of course, the revenue. And as, as we discussed previously, Peak doesn't do ad revenue. So that would give an immediate um, upside to the acquisition. And number three is that of improving their portfolio. So Zynga does not have strong puzzle games in their portfolio and puzzle is the second largest genre in mobile and really adding peak into into their foil is good and why we saw zynga's stock rise so so well so um so significantly after the acquisition is that well now like zynga is not dependent on new game launches and with the acquisition of these two additional forever franchises they're even less dependent on new game launches uh, Zynga has that track record of, of successfully integrating and growing, and it did diversify the portfolio, and now they have more of these forever franchises. And in my opinion, uh, why some of the investors could maybe pump a little bit of their bit breaks is that, first of all, Peak has, in my opinion, plateaued. They haven't really shipped new games. And even when we were making the prediction that Zynga will buy Peak, that was one of the reasons is that we didn't see anything anything big coming out of 
peak in a, in a while. They didn't have really games at soft launch. They were in the category of these tile blasters or whatever you want to call it, that is not really significantly growing. And the growth is happening in actually more of these narrative slash decoration progression games versus versus these ones. And, play, and Peak doesn't have them. Uh, number two is Zynga paid double for what Activision paid for King if you look at EBITDA. So Zynga paid 15 times EBITDA uh, for, for Peak and Activision paid seven times EBITDA for King. And number three is the puzzle segment is super hyper competitive. It's, it's, it's a bloodbath, not even a red ocean. And what Peak currently is doing is not what is driving the growth of the category. They're not making these type of games that are pushing the boundaries and then that are really growing, unlike Playrex and, and, and Tactile and, and other ones. So my take, whether Zynga paid too much or too little, will become clear once Peak's follow titles uh, enter the market. And yeah, Zynga still has around 600 million in cash. That's less what you need for Wudu, but <laughs> just, just kidding. But, um, but yeah, uh, what, do you guys, what do you guys think about this acquisition? Um, I think some of your analysis is a bit flawed, but... <laughs> As always. First of all, the user base thing, I, I, I think there's just completely a misunderstanding of acquiring user bases. Like the 12 million DAUs they get from peak is not necessarily going to be some synergistic, you know, mastermind in which you can upsell or sell other products to. I just don't think that works in mobile as, as, as a lot of people seem to think. Um, I do agree with the peak is plateaued. Um, I do not agree at all that they paid double what Activision paid. I think it's cl far closer than that. And I think also, as I said last week, is that Zynga basically really underrepresented the profitability of peak and, and they did do some, you know, the EBIT uh, multiple arbitrage, probably paying 10 times and, and while uh, Zynga's trading at 20 times. So, um, and then finally, I don't think they would done a deal. Your conclusion doesn't make sense because they wouldn't done a, done a deal like this unless it was accretive because they know that they don't have any real titles in development. They have mm -hmm. been flatlined for a long time. And so it's not based upon what they have in soft launch. It's all based upon what they're operating right now. Yeah. Um, and and they they see less less the fact that he's saying they see less risk and reward possibilities is because they know that the the, the titles are strong. Now, the real risk I think is if we start to see these games decline in any meaningful way, then you know that's a whole different calc. But they still have a lot of wiggle room even to work with that. So anyway, it, I, I I do think it was a great acquisition. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to come across as sounding really gushing about Zynga because I actually was very negative on this company until Frank took over. And, and as soon as things start to turn around for them, I'm going to be as big of a hater as I am on Glue. But, um, <laughs> but it, is, it is an amazing, amazing turnaround story. And it's not just Frank that really achieved this, 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 this feat. I think I don't even know of a better story of a turnaround story in gaming. Um, to date since you know i've been doing this for what 20 25 years um so just just a quick history and i know a lot of people in this probably listen to this know this already but uh frank took over as ceo in 2016 he joined the board in august of 2015 um so he inherited a company that was doing 700 million in revenue for the prior three years and losing money every year right not a good situation right in his first year he grew the business by eight percent and turned a six percent profit by optimizing uh, spend and consolidating and laying off a bunch of people, right? The second year, he grew 13% and had 13% margins. In 2018, he grew another 14% and got up to 18% margins. And in 2019, they finished the year at $1.6 at and a 20% profit, right? And so over the next two years, this, this company could actually achieve $3 billion in revenue and 20% margins, tw high 20 margins, right? And so the turnaround has been remarkable. Um, and he basically, in the four years that he's been CEO, has tripled revenue and and quadrupled margins or something like that. So I, I do want to give him some mad props um, and his team for, for executing against that. And of course, the stock was at 250 and now it's sitting at around nine bucks. Um, and I do think they probably can get this thing to like 13 to $15 over the next two years, which will, you know, by continuing growing profitably. Um, but, you know, I've been talking about this a lot with clients and so a lot of my clients actually own Zynga. So it's making me look smart. But, um, 
you know, it, this thing kind of goes way beyond just the strategy, right? It's just not just Frank up there in his ivory tower, you know, coming up with these ideas. It, you know, it takes a lot of execution, right? And there's a whole other side to this that I'm, I, I really never really appreciate. Um, because Zynga's name was mud in this industry after Pincus and Don Matrick like ran this thing into the ground, right? Almost everybody in the mobile space had worked at Zynga at one time and had turned in and out of this place. Um, and most of them had universally had a negative experience in the company because I think the culture was broken and they had a lot of like politics. It was just really a churn and burn type place. And it really, after a while, became really hard for them to even acquire talent, like get people to work for them. Um, and... What, what I was thinking about was how, how important it is to have like the soft type people in, the, in an organization to really sell the story. And people like Chris Pet Petrovic, you know, and Bernard Kim, and some of these other guys attending meeting after meeting, retelling the story, kind of building up, you know, the, the new Zynga, you know, and the, the perception of Zynga and to change the company and all the HR activities that require in order to get people all st stoked about being there to change the internal culture as, as, how bad it was for, for a while and now how relatively good it is. Of course, I'm sure there's lots of issues still, but whatever. Um, but without these activities, these M&A deals could never happen, right? Because it takes like courtship. You basically have to like wine and dine these CEOs. You have to like get them comfortable with the company. You have to like get them comfortable with the story. And so while people like Bernard Kim, who I've never met, by the way, but I've heard these reputations, I've heard them talk, they drive me crazy because they're always super positive and up on everything, right? Like, they're so perky, you know, um, but without people like him and like Chris Petrovic, like this growth would never be possible because you need people out there telling the story. Um, so anyway, I've given credit a lot, a lot of credit to Frank on this. And I do think, you know, he chose the right team to get this stuff done. Uh, but Chris Petrovic, Bernard Kim, Jeff Ryan, all these guys, and I'm sure a legion more people in, in behind the scenes really did a great job of turning around this company, not from only from a financial perspective, from a cultural perspective as well. And, you know, we'll see if they can keep it going. Um, it seems like they have at least a two, three year runway right now to continue this type of meteoric growth. Um, and, I, and I think it's an example for companies like Rovio and, and other kind of broken companies to, uh, to look at as, as ways of getting out of the funks, you know, that they're in. So, um, yeah. Anybody, any comments on that, guys? After my diatribe. I'm not sure how much I'm going to derail this conversation. Uh, I think the key uh, the key uh, realization there was um, that it's actually cheaper to acquire a company at a premium than build a hit game and grow that game with UA in the current uh, in the current kind of market um, because UA is getting more expensive. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure like. Zynga hasn't really released a hit their own hit game in uh, in like a while, except for the maybe uh, Game of Thrones slots, and and I think at some point they just realize okay let's let's you know double down on M and A and five games you're gonna have like uh, instant impact on our top line, um, and and I think that's that's what they figured out early and that worked for them really well, um, uh, and the other thing I think uh, I just wanted to add on the earnout point uh, that Mish uh, Mishka had. I think they got burned by like earnouts in the last quarter. They actually recorded a loss because of the really high earnout pay payouts. And yeah, you probably know that better. Like about, yeah, these guys in Finland got about like 200 millis. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, I, I, I want you guys to be careful about how you characterize yeah. these earnouts, right? Yeah. I understand that they are losing money on a cash flow basis. And that is a, cert a certain a negative here. But this company is worth like four times as much as it was after these deals. So these earnouts have paid themselves out multiple times, right? And so it's kind of, I, I hear this a lot from industry people where they're like, oh my God, they're losing money, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. But Wall Street doesn't look at that. They look at, they, they take all those earnout payments out of the equation and say, hey, these guys have 20% margins. They're growing the top line in the insane amount. So I hear what you're saying. Like, it seems like a lot of money and it seems like, I, honestly, they negotiated these deals probably a little bit too rich. I mean, and and yeah. and in retrospect, but um, it's all contributed to the fact that this business is you know quadruple what it used to be, and on the way to becoming a huge company. You know, this could be a fifteen billion dollar company. You know, from a from a three billion dollar company. You know, so anyway, I, I hear what you're yeah. saying, but be careful with. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's why they structured the peak deal the way they did without earnouts and probably at a, at a, with a some premium because they want to be in control of the cost a little bit more than with having like a more flexible kind of Right, but, but back to my, my uh, point yeah. about changing culture and changing perception of Zynga out in the industry, right? The only way that peak would, able, would take 900 million of their stock is if they believed in the story, right? If, if they didn't believe in the story, they would take the cash because I am... Dollars to donuts, right? We had Tencent, we had Activision, we had all these guys offering straight hard cash for this stuff, right? Or Activision yeah. stock, which is like cash in and of itself. And so, yeah. I, so versus versus them going to somewhere like Activision or Tencent or Supercell or whoever else was negotiating for this thing, like they went to Zynga for obvious reasons. It's because of the soft, you know, pitch of yeah. people like Petrovic. So, but I do and agree with the, your first thing. Well. What was that? Uh, the long relationship, of course. An existing new relationship. Yeah. Right, right, right. Wining and dining, you know, like all that stuff. Because the CEO is kind of, I've never met him, but he's hes kind of a personality, I imagine. So Yeah, uh, I mean, he, he he's very smart. He's one of the, he understands UA really well. A great guy. He, he's a personality, but like, who isn't? Um, <laughs> in this industry, especially whoever made a billion dollar company. I had two more points. Uh, you were right about Japan. They were actually the number one downloaded app in Japan a few months ago, which is really hard for like a Western app uh, to achieve. And the other thing that I, I think is really interesting for Zynga, uh, this is definitely a fair franchise. Like Metro games have like super uh, well-retained audience. So if you look at a, like uh, Candy Crush, for example, you know, they have players that play, let, that register or install the app like 10 years ago. They're still there spending money and I think this is a great uh, long-term play for Zynga, and it diversifies their portfolio, which is important. So, you know, if Peak stopped spending money on UA, like their revenue decline wouldn't be as 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 high, simply because uh, the audience is super well retained. Um, anyway, let's talk about my favorite subject, and that is Glue, and Glue announcing pricing of public offering of common stock. So, uh, Glue released a, a press release that they're selling 15 million shares of, of common stock at a public offering price of $9.25 per share. So proceeds to glue from the offering are expected to be 130, let's run it up, 139 million, excluding any exercise of the underwriter's option to purchase additional shares. So as discussed in the last episode, glue is on fire in a good way. Uh, <laughs> you never know with them. Uh, anyway, so mobile revenue has increased for, by 12% year over year. Booking saw a 15% increase year over year. Their crown title design home hitting all-time records, 11% year over year growth. The downloads and revenues doubled from February to March, driven by MLB 2020, Sources Arena, and Kim K coming from the back. So why this public offering is happening? Is Glue capitalizing on this ongoing success? to prepare for future tough times like, like JK uh, insinuated <laughs> last time? Or are they preparing a war chest for possible acquisitions? And, and I, I, there, there are plenty of companies that, that they, can, they can acquire and grow. So Eric, you're, you're the most knowledgeable I, about glue. What do you look, think? I think? I think it's really smart for them. You know, you gotta strike while the iron's hot. You know, this is a very dilutive deal. Like it's around 10% dilutive because 50 million shares represent about 10% of the shares outstanding. And the stock has been down about that much for, since the announcement, which kind of makes sense. Uh, so I'll give them credit for going for broke here, right? Put it all on black. You know, I think the best thing they probably do with this money is find a great developer to fill the gaping hole in their pipeline. Um, I think the worst that they could do is go after some other license and do some stupid deal like Disney in which they're losing money. So, or they could spend money on building new teams for development, which I think would be, be very expensive and take too long. And, and to Nebo's point, like building those kind of experiences and, and scaling them is really, really challenging in this environment. So acquisition makes total sense. So if they can pick up someone that's accretive for 100 to 150 million, then that could be a very positive thing for the stock and positive mm. thing for for Zynga if it's if it's the right acquisition. I just don't really know how many teams are out there like that, like that fit that profile. But I, um, I know a team that they could hire for that, not hire that they could purchase for that money, and it would be immediately additive to their EBITDA, and it wouldn't cost more than that. But I I can't say because then JK has to bleep it, and 
No, but then, but then see, see, this is this is my whole point, right? Like, if you were a company and you wanted to get acquired, would you want to get acquired by something like Glue, or would you want to get acquired by something like Zynga? Right. Well, it it also depends on the company that is getting acquired. So probably the the company that Glue would acquire would be um, a sort of a tier two plus. Yeah. Right. So kind of on the brink because we're talking only about hundred million and because they're public, then they can, they can, you know, make the deal in a way that they give a lot of shares out so they can bid for a little bit higher. Uh, glue has been pretty good with the customization categories. So that's one. I don't know if they need another customization studio, but what they could think about and probably are thinking about is something around sports. I don't know, something maybe with cars that could be pretty cool. Uh, so that could add a little bit to their portfolio. All right, let's move on to the next yeah. one. Uh, I think you guys are assuming they're going to spend it. I mean, there there is something called resiliency as well. You know, you know no, they have to spend no. it. They they can't. <laughs> you you cannot sit on cash. You know, yeah. you cannot sit on cash as a public company like this, particularly if you're not really growing all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, they're buying know. something. They're buying something that is worth about two hundred, between hundred and two hundred. All right, moving on to our last article, game and UA teams that work together, grow together from the Deconstructor of Fun websites, written by the author who is with us here today, Nebo. And so Nebo kicks off this post by actually a very interesting statistic where he looked at the top 50 grossing apps and found that there are, of those 50 top grossing apps, they fall into three categories. First are first movers like Candy Crush and Class of Clash of Clans, and 4% of this category comprise the top 50 in terms of like how they were able to achieve success. Secondly, cultural phenomenon like Pokemon Go, Fortnite, and Roblox, which make up 6%, and the remaining 90% of apps achieve success through scaled user acquisition. So the point that Nebo makes is that mastering UA is crucial. Then Nebo talks about IPM and CPM as key metrics to help scale UA, and then the final conclusion is then that in order to optimize and scale UA, you really need to have product and UA teams work together. And to this last point, Nebo, you gave three specific types of ways or examples of how teams can do this. So could you talk wait, to us directly since you're here about- Wait, the- hold on a minute. I have to interject here. This, okay. this feels a lot like an Adam Telfer article in which is completely self-promoting, right? Why should you hire me? right? Because 90% of success is driven through user acquisition, like similar to Adam, where it's like 90% of the success is driven through product management work, right? Yeah. So am I wrong here? Is this like all self-promotion media? Are you uh, looking for Yeah, you're, you're wrong, unfortunately. It's, um, and basically the, the graph I shared in the beginning, it like explains that. It's, so if, if, if you look at my career, you'll see that I mostly worked with mid-core titles. And, you know, like four years ago, if you look at like top 50, there was like a lot of mid-core titles in there, but that's not the case anymore. And the reason why that's not the case anymore is because of the UA changes, machine learning is becoming more important. And as a result of that, you know, it's more of a level playing field on the UA side. So actually the way you build product and design product becomes significantly more important than what was the case four years ago. And it was also important at the time. And you have to think about how the game looks and, and plays and feels and what's the retention profile early on before even um, things like soft launch. That's what the article is all about. That, you know, like product and UA, UA have to work closely to get together from the very beginning. Having a great UA team will only take you so far, but it's also like with the product team, right? So basically, you know, it's not just about UA and, uh, you know, kind of hire me uh, chant. It's more like, you know, product and UA need to work close together, closer than ever in order to succeed. And if you look at some examples of what are the apps that broke into like top 50, that becomes easily apparent. So yeah, I shared three examples. One example is Archero, which is like, you know, uh, uh, on the Constructor of Fun, you guys wrote uh, pretty extensively about it. It it looks and feels like hyper casual or a casual game, but it has like much deeper monetization systems. And what it does is that the game has is very accessible. It's easy to market, but it monetizes much better than what's the case with most games that look and feel like that. And it, because of because of IPM and because of the conversion rate, it's really hard to to compete with games that have like ten or twenty times higher conversion rates. And you know because in most cases your LTV is not ten or twenty times higher. And Archer is again a great example because it it looks really really casual, and that's why you know teams need to. Uh, think about like what what's the art style and what's the theme of the game 
early on and work with marketing to, to find the best kind of uh, monetization team fit. The other example I shared is uh, about Wildlife Studio, a highly successful studio from Brazil that uh, you guys probably talked about in the past. They're a good example of a well-diversified studio that managed to kind of like uh, find uh, different teams that are converting really well. And it's interesting that some of those themes are very kind of common in your newsfeed, like things that it, you probably played one of those math tests with like shoes and whatnot in the past few months that everybody shared on WhatsApp and Viber and Facebook. And they have like a math learner game. Uh, they had, you know, violence and violence and shooting. Are you, you read about those all the time in, in, in the news. And they, they have a sniper 3D game with some uh, gruesome ads that are converting really well. So you can find inspiration for like different th game themes everywhere. And you just need to think early on about what converts well and what people care about. And the last point is that uh, you kind of like the journey doesn't stop there. What we saw with like misleading ads uh, in the past few months now started like happening inside the game as well. Uh, so uh, Wildscapes that wasn't really successful when it launched had like, I, I think had a major update in the last few months, but they started including, including misleading ads inside the game. And the point of this is to, to kind of minimize the, minimize the impact of misleading ads on, on, on the retention profile. So you kind of want to minimize the friction between the ad and the gameplay in order to keep those users in the game. So what misleading ads do, they lower the cost significantly, but then you have a bunch of people who have like a certain expectation and then they come in the game and it's nothing like that. So they decided to minimize that friction by integrating the misleading ad inside the game. And two games that broke into like uh, basically player's games that are, there's plenty of them in top 50 and Hero Awards, which is one of the, few games they broke into top 100 last year uh, is also doing that. So I, I found that a very, I found that approach of pivoting the gameplay very interesting. And I think that's one of the ways how uh, developers can combat this issue of like UA becoming more and more expensive. And Nebo, just like, I know a lot of, there's been talk at least in the, over the last year or two about a lot of UA and product teams working together. And when you ask a lot of companies, they're like, oh yeah, we're, yeah, our, our teams, our UA and product teams are fully integrated. But then when you actually look under the hood or talk to some folks about what they actually do, they actually don't. Is that like how many teams are actually working together, in your opinion? Yeah, that, that's, that's really hard to say. I mean, everybody, you know, all, all the teams work together, but the level of integration <laughs> is, is, uh, is questionable. We talked about this in some of the earlier podcasts. Like, I used to work like super close together with the legendary team. I, I understand legendary pretty much as well as most people who work on, on that game. Not just like not just how the game plays, but also the the metrics, the monetization systems. Yeah, because that was really important for us to to kind of improve our Facebook performance, or uh, you know, like to to test different like creatives and yeah. how they could impact the, the retention of the games. And you know when we initially started like tested misleading ads, they they never worked for us because they, the retention would be so bad that it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, what's what seems to be the case is that more and more uh, teams are working, more and more product new things are working close, clo more closely. And the Hero Wars and and Playrix are again like a good example of that. And they might be driven from the kind of sea level. Uh, I don't I don't really have insight into that, but it's apparent to me that more game teams are. Uh, learning what's important on the game side and trying to implement it in the game. And they're just a sign that this is becoming a thing now. It's not mm -hmm. just uh, something that people think about. Can you describe like, what is a good team? What is, what does look working together successfully look like? Because, you know, in my, in my personal experience, it's a little bit challenging because of two reasons. Um, not everybody in the game team understands what UA does. And every time UA does a presentation, it's either, too high level or doesn't go into details uh, enough. And, and, and they also fail to break it down to understandable portion when, when they try to break it down. They use a lot of acronyms or people are like dozing off right away. So I'm talking about your artists and your basic developers and so forth. And on the other side, like, these are negative scenarios. And, and on the other side, I've, I've noticed that it's been difficult because the UA team, like you mentioned, you knew you understood Legendary really well. In my experience, a lot of the UA managers, campaign managers in the UA people don't give a fuck about, about the game. They're like, listen, I'm not here. I don't give a shit. I'm here to scale and grow. Uh, whatever you have, just put it here and I'll, I'll see if I can do some magic. If not, it's the shitty game. If yes, then I was a master. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I agree with you. A lot of people actually don't play <laughs> their, the games they advertise and that's, that's, that just 
horrible. Uh, because if you don't understand the product you're like advertising, then it's really hard to come up with all kinds of different mm-hmm. ways to advertise that product, right? I think what this is, what this change is going to have impact on is that PMM as a as a function is going to become more popular, where you'll have someone who sits in between like a product and mark uh, product and the UA team and understands both languages and kind of like translates like Bubblefish. So uh, I, I think that's uh, like that's what we are doing in network. We are like hiring more PMMs to kind of bridge that gap in case mm-hmm. you don't have someone who understands both sides of of, of the equation. Well, Neva, um, it's, it's great to hear that there's like, it seems like what you're doing at Network is probably more on the forefront, but I, I would say that there are a lot of studios out there. I don't, I'm not going to call anyone out, but there's a lot of studios out there where it's actually more antagonistic rather than teamwork, right? Where it's yeah. like, product team it's like all oh, those marketing guys that's why the game isn't doing well because yeah, the, yeah. they're not marketing Sending, the game right and the marketing guys are like this is a shitty product right yeah, and then yeah. so just to be real for our audience th- that happens a lot so having like the right culture and the right process and to mishka's point teaching these teams how to work together in an efficient effective way i think is definitely as far as I'm, I'm concerned, I don't believe a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, our product and UA teams work so well together. I, I personally have not seen, like, yeah. I've seen decent examples. I haven't seen great examples. Yeah, but like, so, so my question would be more like, why is there a product and UA team? Why isn't the UA, the campaign manager, part of the game team? Yeah, that was the case in Legendary. I was part okay, of the well, game team. Yeah. Well, that's... Well, that's then. Then it's a little bit different because now you're yeah. part of the same standups. Now you're part of a exactly. team member. You're carrying your your torch just like everybody else. Because what I've seen is is either you have you know our UA team is located on a different continent, which is just bullshit, and then you're just in in these endless emails on, on a long thread of like, can you explain this? Can you explain that? Where the traffic is coming? That's that's the worst case scenario. Uh, the kind of a next step is usually that you have the UA team in house. Uh, and then you give them hot seats in your team and they come in and they kind of, you know, they're present there. They're actually humans that you can talk to. Uh, but still, the, the liaison between those is not at the same. They're like, they're like visiting members from the, uh, the UA team that are now here. And you can talk to them on Mondays and on Thursdays. And that's when they give you a report and then they smile and say, goodbye, I'll be here in a couple of days. Uh, but but in my opinion, Joe, the, the fact is like what Nebo described is when that person is part of the game team, just like they would be in a startup, then it makes sense. Yeah, and I do. think to your point, Mishka, the, the whole centralized UA thing, I think Zing is a good example of how that actually doesn't work, right? Uh, yes. You, yeah, so. But Zynga has, Zynga has great PMMs in, in all the studios. So that's kind of like the part, what, what Nebo was saying is, is do you have these interpreters and these, these people who have to, who not have to, who are in between the game team and, and the product team so, and the UI team. So Nebo, actually, I wanted to ask you about, about this question. So uh, Tactile has been doing really great in, in, in marketing and doing great in the sense that their creatives have been successful because they're good creatives and not these... I just don't think this Playrix thing is going to last. What they're doing is just, just, you know, these silly ads that don't have any meaning with the game and stuff like that. Just It feels like such a hack that is not going to work for a long time versus what Tactile is using is very interesting because they're tapping into into their audience. They, they clearly understand what, what motivates their audience, well, what are the hooks, and they're creating creatives for that audience. So my question is more about um, what is you know, how do you get there? Like, do you need to have your creative people? Like, how does the creative people work with UA people? Because another part that I've seen not working is when you have these PMMs or you have your UA people and and when it's time to make a creative strategy, guess what? They're going to deconstruct the top ads that you can find on Sensor Tower and they're going to do a version of those for you. And you're like, what is this? Like, is this, is this the, the best you can do? And they're like, yes, because this ad is getting a lot of traction. I'm like, yes, that's true. But how yeah. is that going to help me, like, to do the same ad? Yeah, so uh, I, I didn't have a lot of insight into, like, uh, who, who are the founders of, like, Tactile. But um, I, I thought about this a lot. And I think this probably came from the top. They saw that um, the ads for episode and choices are doing extremely well and that they keep growing um, their, uh, their games pretty fast. 
but the problem with like the, those like narrative driven games is like long-term retention, I think. And, and someone like probably, probably founders or someone senior in the organization uh, realized, Hey, why don't we find, why don't we combine this highly converting team with like a highly uh, retentive uh, mechanic, which is kind of like a narrative driven match tree. And that's how you got Lily's garden. So I think in this particular case, it came from the top. It's someone who actually managed to connect those two and be like, hey, this, this particular style of ads, this particular theme is doing well. Let's use the, the Playrix's match tree narrative progression um, system and try to combine those two and see what's going to come out. So I think in most cases, this comes from the top by someone who is able to connect the two and, and come up with a product. So, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any more context on like? Uh, on I would. I would. Um. I would extend an invitation to Gonzalo Fasanella. Yeah. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. He's yeah. chief marketing officer, at Tactile. Because I'm sure it comes from the top, and he's the CMO. But it would be very interesting to to get that approach because I don't see a lot of companies truly tapping into the player base. I think Activision has done a good job with with Call of Duty Mobile, where but. Again, they do understand what is the audience for Call of Duty Mobile. And I think as, as you know, UA is evolving all the time. And I think it will involve more, evolve more into, into advertising with understanding of your audience, even, even better, understanding the motivations, understanding what they're, why are they playing the game, why they wouldn't be playing the game, and, and breaking that into different personas and then targeting those. Uh, because it feels like what, what Tactile has been doing is according to that. And I've heard some stuff that Gonzalo was doing, and, and it was very creative-focused, where it wasn't driven by by the UA team that heavily, where they would be yeah. you know deconstructing the, the top-performing ads of today and doing their own version. But it would be more about really thinking about the audience first, making creatives around that, and then pushing those, and, and, and kind of learning as a team, as, as a creative team, of what our players are interested in. And I think that type of approach is, um, even though it's more like handcrafted and, and, and requires you to understand your players, I think that type of process and that type of approach has more longevity than coming up with these fucking tricks of like, hey, we tricked our players to play this game. And guess what? We put that trick inside our game and now they're double tricked. So they think, and it's just like, it's like really is that is that what's going to work? I think that's that's a short lived. I mean, it's probably going to work for another year, and then someone yeah. is going to come up with a new tactic. It's um, you know we had like a dominant theme. I wrote about it as well. A dominant ad or creative theme every year. I mean, a year ago it was new versus pro. Before that, it was playable. So mm-hmm. there's a new trick, you know, uh, waiting for us around the corner. Uh, my only concern there is that basically Google and Facebook, which are by far the biggest ad networks, they're removing audience as a lever. So you won't be able to target specific people. Uh, they'll choose that for you. Uh, or, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of limits, uh, limits developers on what they can do on the audience side of things. But I, I think it's going to be really important understanding, uh, understanding how like, accessible your game is and, and how well ads convert. Uh, yeah. Because they can limit you in the long run. And I think that's what like, led to the decline of core genre because it's basically too narrow. And then you cannot really, it, it's much harder to find those users and that kind of limits, limits Facebook and Google to do well and ultimately limits you as a company. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where like thinking about audience is really important. It's like, you should also think about, okay, what genre your, your game should be in because they can limit your, um, your kind of like uh, potential or opportunity. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what I think a lot of studios are not doing. At least I haven't seen a lot of studios that are, really focusing on the genre on on the audience that much they're very much focused on their competitors they're very much focused on on the product side uh and then when it comes to audience itself they might do some qualitative studies stuff like that but but they're not really understanding the personas or they coming up with the personas themselves and um i don't know i'm just i'm just talking about this because this is what i've been personally doing lately and 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 kind of woken up to to the uh the whole um the meaning of audience and, and how do you communicate to different personas and through that understanding who to target. But again, uh, it's, um, it's, I just find there's always new stuff to learn. And, and in my opinion, just what tactile has been doing is, is, is fascinating because it's yeah, not a trick. It's, it's truly like understanding your audience. Yeah. It started from the very beginning and then they kind of just like played along. Um, 
yeah, uh, I wrote about it that as well. But Lily's Garden is a very interesting, uh, you, uh, interesting example. Uh, just one thing to to kind of like add is that misleading ads won't work in anything that's more mid core or like core because the you know the retention of those users is is horrible. And then you know your LTV curve looks different. Everything looks different. And usually the the kind of the gain you get on the CPI front is not is not like uh, low enough or like high mm -hmm. enough to offset the the retention loss. Um, and that's that's what most developers don't understand or they are not really um, aware of when they start playing with the misleading ads. So before JK shuts us off, and I, I know Eric is already sleeping somewhere. Yeah, it's easy. Come on. <laughs> so, so what is like if you could mention like one thing that studios could do better to work to get to bring ua closer or just to make a more successful uh, organization like what where should they start let's yeah yeah i i think if if they're smaller studios ua people should be part of the game teams if they're bigger studios like zynga zynga studios they should definitely hire a pmm someone to kind of bridge the gap between ua and uh, un product and someone mm -hmm. who kind of speaks both languages and is able to kind of you know, uh, understand the opportunities on both, on both sides to and to capitalize on them. Um, that's kind of the, the shortest answer I can provide. So shout out to all the PMMs because you just yeah. got promoted. Like yeah. now everybody is looking for them. Self promotion at its finest. Yeah. There's no PMM PMMs on the call. So PMM product marketing manager. Oh, so, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, cool. guys. Hey, guys. Adam, you're still on notice, dude. So uh, bring your A game next week. <laughs> sorry, I, was, I, I just woke up. What, what happened? What? <laughs> dude, got to bring it next week, dude. Next week, we're going to talk about who's going to buy Woodoo. I won't be That's there. It. So. All right, guys. Have a good week. All right, bye. Later. Bye.